Welcome to Strung Out, a podcast dedicated to look at life through the lens of an artist. That artist and your host is Martin Lawrence McCormack. And now here's Martin. Great to have you with us on Strung Out. And I have a guest that I am so happy that we've reconnected. It's been a while, and the pandemic certainly has had uh, a lot to do with that as well. But I've known this gentleman for a long time. We went to university together, and since university, this man has gone off and has uh, accomplished a lot of things. His name is Stuart Shea, and Stuart Shea researches popular music, baseball, and sports media. He's written nine books, include Fab Four, Fact, Pink Floyd Fact, Wrigley Field, The Life and Contentious Times of the Friendly Confines, and Calling the Game, The History of Baseball Broadcasting. Now, the, the first record Stu ever bought was by Carly Simon, and a couple days ago, uh, you got a Michael Nesmith album, and I'm wondering which one did you get? I've got pretty much everything he ever did, Marty. You and I played some Michael Nesmith songs back in our day. And There's a new Nesmith record of unreleased material he did in the early 70s when he was at RCA, mm. and I'm pretty excited to hear it. That's, I'll be excited to hear what you <laughs> what you what you say of it, about it when you get the review, but that's something I want to tell the listening audience about you Stu is that one of the neat things is that you're a musician. And you traveled with the band Green, well-known Chicago group. You've had that experience of that side of the musical world as well. I thought today we could talk just a little bit about the band of all bands, and that is the Beatles. Ironically, we probably can't play any of their music because of copyright laws. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, but we can certainly talk about them. And the reason why I wanted to talk about them is because my daughter, Anya, when I was talking to her, I wanted to ask her, and I just wanted her to come over here real quick. Come here for a second, Anya. And stand near the microphone. Can you tell Stu what you think about the Beatles? Well, I really like the Beatles because... Some of their songs have stories and meanings, and also I like them because they're so fun to hear, and they have all these cool sounds and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, Stu, are the Beatles still the gateway band? It's funny that I have such a perceptive feeling, I think, about what made the Beatles interesting and exciting to people even 60 years ago, 55 years ago. I think it's not an original thought to say that the Beatles are now great kids' music because they're gateway drugs to melody, to song structure, to harmony and counterpoint. I think all the things that were extreme about them 60 years ago have now seeped into the greater pop culture. The idea of a sort of self-generated performing and writing entity was a new thing, I think. I'd say that there were a couple of examples at the time that were also doing that, but I, I think the Beatles' recordings will never be the most popular in the world, but I think their songs are going to continue because they have singable melodies and deft lyrics that, as Ani said, they tell stories. They have ideas and images, and they, I think, were free to let their imaginations go as songwriters. They define their own sort of style of music. They, they came from an age, I think, in which barriers did not really exist. They were very Catholic in their tastes. They loved Ray Charles, and they loved Disney movies and country music and ballads and Chuck Berry. 
during their apprenticeship in Germany, they played three, four, five, six hour sets in which they had to play every kind of music that people wanted to hear. Amazing how expanding your palate improves your ability to write songs and visualize sounds. And to me, that's the great lesson of that. Just play and find your zone. And for people that are in the music business, coming into the music business now, you talk about the great songwriting, which indeed they were. They, for me, took that uh, torch that Gilbert and Sullivan and some of these other great songwriting duos had, but they took it to a whole other level. Do you think among the contemporary artists that are out there today that they have the same kind of relevance that maybe our generation gave them? I think that the way that young people now consume music is so different than the way that we did 40 years ago, or even people did 20 years ago. People now hear new music mostly through their phone. I, I, t I tend to think of it as that the larger the medium in which you listen to music, the kind of more widescreen your view could be. So you'd, t you'd get an album, a record album, you'd take it home, you'd open it up, maybe it had a gatefold cover, maybe it had the lyrics on the sleeve, it was a big experience. You'd have to sit there and put the record on the turntable. There was an intentionality about it, in a way. Mm -hmm. CDs changed that a little bit by miniaturizing things and getting rid of a lot of the ancillary material that came with records, so that made the experience, to me, seem a little smaller. And now you've got basically just a pair of earbuds and a phone in which you're discovering things, which is great because you can hear things you never possibly would have heard before. How would a, a young person in 1981 have heard tube and throat singing? Or how would a young person in Australia have heard authentic American folk music? Now you can hear that stuff all over the world. So there are good points and bad points to the way things are done now. But I'm not sure that the world is small enough now that any one artist will ever take over the popular consciousness the way the Beatles did because the method of communication was much smaller back then in the 60s. Maybe your town had one or two TV channels unless you lived in a big city. Maybe you even had one TV channel. You had a few radio stations. No radio station could survive just playing rock and roll music. They had to play ballads and they had to play rhythm and blues or they had to play country western. The world the Beatles created was a world in which was almost self-contained. And that kind of world really can't exist anymore. We're in a different place. So I'm not sure that, I'm not really sure where the direction of popular music is going. Mm -hmm. It's just mathematical to say that there are as many great artists now as there were back then. It's just not possible to say that there aren't. What it is now is that they're in a very different world in which the economic system in which we live has decided what the direction of music is going to be. It's much more singular now. It's not necessarily involving collaboration, and certainly there aren't a lot of places for young musicians to play. That's, I think, harder than it used to be. Back in the 60s, there were teen clubs and youth dances and church socials, and just all sorts of environments for bands to play in, all sorts of gauge for them to get. Now it's a very different world. And especially with the pandemic, I, I think that's going to just make it a smaller pool. Absolutely. There are young musicians who have missed critical times in their lives. I know that you guys have gone from a huge performance schedule to essentially zero. 
I'm sure for you that's been an extremely difficult situation and one that in which you probably are grieving. I know your fans are grieving it. I'm grieving it as a fan of going out to see all sorts of musicians uh, and playing with people too. It's difficult just to even collaborate with people in the same room, much less be in a, in a large hall or a, a small club playing to people. So yeah, it's a very unfortunate thing for music now. If the Beatles came out today, if they were out today, what do you think would happen to them? How would they fare in this kind of world? Do you think they would have had a, a trajectory into the social conscience like they did, or would they be cheek to jowl with people like Lady Gaga and Taylor Swift? Yeah, that's a really great question. What would they look like now? What kind of songwriting would they do? John might be an artist more, I don't know, I don't want to compare any of these people to Lennon because that's unfair to compare anybody to him and also it negates their own individual trip, but there are artists that might be more Lennon, the fellow from Tame Impala or M. Ward, songwriters like that, the idiosyncratic, Sufjan Stevens, songwriters that are a little bit more, even somebody like Questlove, somebody who's got their own sort of vision. Really, that's what John and Paul did. I think people who have great vision of the sort of vistas of their lives are the people who are artists that are following in, in John and Paul's shadow, I'd say. And Paul would certainly be at home. He'd be a really great producer right now. He loves the recording studio. He loves the, pro the act of recording. And recording now is extremely easy to do for so many people. Paul continues to work now, and he's always working with new people and always looking at new approaches. He would maybe fit in the world right now more as a pop artist than John. Really a, a great answer, Stu. We're talking to Stu Shea, a writer, a musician. He has really a lot of knowledge about the Beatles. I remember back in school, you going to the conventions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You have really followed the Beatles, and not only a fan, but I love the fact that you have that critical sensibility about them, and there's a lot of questions I, that are just springing into my mind while you're talking. I want to touch on that idea still of if they were around today. I love McCartney being a producer. Lennon, do you think he would be writing political songs do you think that he would be that kind of socially active person and is there a place in music today for that or is it something like the dixie chicks where you get slapped down oh you mean the original cancel culture yes yeah yeah i think that john was going to be what he was no matter what i mean the guy was born to be an artist and I say artist in the term that not only delineates and indicates great art, that he was a great maker of art, but also that he had the troubled soul of an artist, someone who saw things maybe a little bit differently than a lot of people did. And that can be a really painful way to live your life. There's certainly no shortage of people now who are writing socially conscious songs. One of the things about John is that he came into a world in which that really wasn't done. Other than you had some of the gospel artists like the staple singers at the time were singing a lot of social conscious stuff and Bob Dylan was starting to sing socially conscious material in 62, 63 but the idea of doing that in a white popular music medium was completely unknown. The Weavers had been doing that in the 40s and 50s and they got slapped down pretty good for a long time and their career suffered for that. John being this outspoken guy, he was the enemy I think at the very beginning of the system he was the first one I think of the four Beatles to really see through it 
and to realize that this was a lot of hooey, a lot of hogwash, the star system. And he didn't really want to be a part of it. He wanted to use his music to do something more, as he saw it, important. And that was a really big thing in the 60s. That was a huge change. And, and he was commercially viable with his political songs. I think that's the amazing thing. Even a Christmas song, you know, that, yep. that he wrote that I can find myself humming, war is over if you want it. That's still a relevant and powerful message that resonates today. And I agree. The thing about that song is that it's an old folk melody, right? It's, it's like Stuball, isn't it? He took this amazing pop art phrase, war is over if you want it, and he wedded it to that. And that's his genius. John could have written advertising slogans. John was always coming up with slogans instant karma you say you want a revolution these are great sort of pop art advertising slogans for peace and that's what he saw himself as an advertiser for peace a huckster he was not afraid to be a clown if it helped get his message in front of people and that was very different than the other Beatles there's no comparison with somebody like George Harrison who after the Beatles broke up, became a musician, a working musician, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, and there's something very laudable about that, too. And same thing for Ringo Starr. But Ringo took on his own personality and celebrity. Before we take a break here, I want to focus on uh, something you said, and that was that Lennon could see through the commerciality of the whole system. And even before that, you touched on the idea that we have very few places for young people now to even get out and perform. One of the things that I really have a problem with is that the licensing agencies went out of their way to go after mom and pop cafes and such and um, shut them down because they terrified them that they're going to have to pay $2,400 or exorbitant licenses. And we lost so many venues. The commerciality of it all, do you think that that the Beatles would have been able to fight against that the way it is now? I see so much of it. Part of the question is certainly about the over-commerciality. You look at somebody like Linda Ronstadt, such an amazing singer, but most of her money now is gone because she was an artist and not a songwriter. So she now has been living on pretty small performing royalties for a long time. And whereas the music publishers are doing just fine off the music that she sang because the system has been gained in favor of publishers. In other words, this sort of not completely necessary service that is provided by you know BMI, ASCAP, CSAC, all these agencies that control the licensing of music. I think if somebody like John was around today, he'd be talking about what garbage it is. I, I remember David Lowry from Capra Van Beethoven and Cracker. This is 15, 20 years ago. He was talking about stuff like Napster. He says it's, it's hippie capitalism is what he called it. That was a scam from the get-go. All these things where the artist makes a little money from their recordings now. That's why you don't have the Beatles in a way. Right now, the music music scene is geared towards producers and publishers rather than towards musicians who don't have really places to play. Like you said, there are a lot of mom and pop places that used to have music. So many bands got their starts back in the 60s and 70s and even before that, playing at the VFW Hall, playing down at Fred's Bar or playing a teen dance or playing at a church social. And a lot of those opportunities just don't exist anymore. The business has changed so much that you don't have 
A&R, there's nobody out there looking for the brand new talent. Like what existed during the 60s and 70s, certainly by the time you and I were even playing, Stu, it was probably too late, wasn't it? There was certainly A&R, but the currency was different. In some ways, you could argue that the really exciting times in, in pop music history in our lifetimes and maybe before, starting with Elvis, is that there are a few years after the breakthrough of a new artist or a new style in which the business doesn't really have a hold on it yet. The mid to late 50s, there were tons and tons of great rock and roll records and rockabilly records and R&B records made that the business didn't really have a handle on it yet. So you could still have little bands from Virginia or Arizona have huge national hit songs because they came up with a sound that was exciting to people and the industry didn't yet have a way to control it. That happened in the 60s, I think, also. I'd say from about 64 to 68. But the business hadn't yet caught up with the innovation of the artists. So you had a huge amount of great records made in that time. And you could definitely say the punk explosion in 78, 79 in Britain. All these amazing records were made without the industry knowing how to control it. And now the industry, I think, has done a pretty good job of, of ramping up how business is done. They definitely have a stranglehold in the business. It seems to me, I, I think that the idea of an unknown making it seems very slim. It seems to happen in hip-hop and rap that you have a regional sound that is maybe in Texas something that'll be like a new beat when suddenly that breaks out. It's weird because the white recording industry really didn't know how to cater to black recording artists, so they went in and just threw their model on top of the black music industry. But the black music industry has always had a really strong sort of self-generated push to it. What's coming out of the streets right now is really like the current equivalent of punk or rockabilly, some a street movement. And there's really no more sort of white street music like doo-wop back in the 50s or country western, rockabilly, garage music. White people now are basically entrenched economically in a way that African-Americans and, and Latinx population aren't. So the real street music now is the stuff that's coming in Latinx music, Latin house and hip hop and rap and all sorts of subgenres like trap. That's really street music. There'll always be the sound of the street in some method or other. It's just not something that is universal. It's more local. And I think that in some ways that's a really good thing. I like local music. I like local phenomena. But in terms of creating working artists, I don't know if there's like a great plan in hip hop, in Latinx music, in white pop right now. There's no great career plan for helping an artist go through all the snakes and ladders of a career in music. That's something that you had to learn, Marty, and I think by just by doing it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I always thought how unfair it was in a way. I know there are universities, the Berkeley School of Music and things like that. Even there, I don't know if you are taught how to become a musician. You have to learn. You just swim. I think that's what you're saying about it. But let's take a little break here. We are having a fascinating discussion with Stu Shea. He's an author, he's a, a musician, and he's an expert on the Beatles. I know you've talked to the BBC and, and other places. It's just totally fascinating the way right now you're weaving the Beatles into contemporary times and the plight of the modern musician. So we're listening strung out. 
Now that you've heard Martin McCormack, you should see him as well. Tune in to the Mr. Marty Show for Talk, a COVID cocktail, 30 seconds of cute on-the-corner special guests, and music. Go to martinmccormack.com and click on the Mr. Marty Show link.
say talk is cheap but here on the strung out podcast we say talk is gold that's right by sending a gift of love to martinmccormack.com's donate page you help keep strung out broadcasting send your gift of love today to martinmccormack.com and help us keep talking we're back with Stouchet, author, musician. Did you ever write anything about the monkeys? So the reason that I got to play music, just because as American kids, as an American kid, I saw these American kids on TV being really funny and crazy and playing music. And I think that I probably knew about the monkeys when I was four, because my mom remembers watching them with us when I was four years old. Mm-hmm. And in some way, they were more accessible than the Beatles were just because they were Americans. My, my kind of hero was Mike Nesmith. He's this kind of bizarre songwriter with all these weird influences, like a space cowboy who liked mambo music and Jimi Hendrix. So he was just like all over the place. And what I wrote about, I've thought about writing a book about them, but there have been books written about them. I wrote a long sort of history of them maybe 40 years ago before we knew more than I know now than we all know now about about history. It may be that at some point I write something about them because I do find them a fascinating rise and fall rocket ship, like a two-year rocket ride, and then a, a huge crash, which, as the Beatles did, I think the Beatles in the early 70s really thrashed around for their direction. All the guys in the Monkees, after the Monkees ended in 69-70, they all struggled to reestablish themselves. And in some ways, they never really did. At least a couple of them can continue to struggle on a very small level for the rest of their careers. Their rocket ride was even more intense than the Beatles because it was so quick. And they came from sort of nothing as far as, you know, professionally. They didn't have the Crucible as a band that the Beatles did or a lot of other bands. And the Beatles went to Germany. I think George Harrison was 17 years old when they went to Germany. You know, into this crazy world of insanity, of drugs and sex and six-hour shows for gangsters and their girlfriends, people throwing bottles everywhere. The monkeys didn't really have that. They were more an assembled American version of, of a rock band at that time that's formed in a test tube, which to me is just as fascinating in a way. 
but I would love to write about them. But as you, it's really tough to write right now, and it's tough to make a living doing any writing. So all this stuff has to be done in spare time. Luckily, in the last year, you and I have had a lot of spare time. Absolutely. So. I, I love what you just said about the monkeys. I think you have two different models that were out there for bands, and I think the monkeys model is more prevalent today, and that's maybe the cynic. I mean, even at the time the monkeys were out, bands like the Eagles were put together. They were formed, and uh, they somehow made it. I guess my question to you with looking at the way the music scene is, do we need to have a revolution, the music scene? Do, do you think that there's a certain level of complacency younger people have listening to this music? My follow-up question to it is, do you think young people are aware of how grossly exploited the majority of musicians are for their art. I think I'll answer that second part first. I think the answer is no. I think people don't have any idea how the business works until you research it. And we're in a culture now that's in some ways slow and indiscriminate. I hate to say that, but there are a lot of people who don't want to know. And we've seen in the last four or five years that not wanting to know anything can be an extremely difficult and painful and harmful thing to the common good. The fact that artists get so little money for their work on services like Spotify, it's past being a shame. It's a crime. It's a crime against art. It's a crime against artists. Part of this is a larger kind of widescreen question about America and about the world. 20 years ago, the idea of, of having a home computer was still novelty. And there's whole generations of people now who've grown up with computers in their homes, with cell phones. And so much has been lost through the kind of smalling, the shrinking of the sphere in which people live. I just think about the fact that even when you were poor in, in the old days in America, and I'm talking about old days 40, 50 years ago, as well as back, your house probably still had a piano. Your house probably had a guitar. Because before television, and even after television in a lot of places, people made their own fun. You played your own music. You, everybody had a piano in the house. Everybody had a guitar. Even poor families had some sort of musical instrument or they maybe sang in church. They sang at community centers. They sang for the idea of making your own music was paramount. Yeah, you had national recording stars, but 50, 60, 70 years ago, there was so much local music being made by people in their own homes that it was only natural that would spill out into the larger world. Now I think people, when they make music, it is often a more individual thing. You're learning your lessons on YouTube. You're playing the piano in your own place. I'm not a huge fan of the current musical, but I do appreciate the fact that at least kids are singing songs. They're learning musicals. They're learning songs from Broadway shows, and at least they're learning about singing. And that's at least something. But the days in which everybody had a piano or a guitar or an accordion in their house, I don't know if those days are coming back. And I think that's really the fundamental question of how music goes forward. Do people begin playing music again as something that is critical to their lives? Or are there other ways now in which people are getting all their entertainment? You bring up an excellent point because one of the ways in which people discover a love of music is through education. Our educational system certainly has changed too. We don't have that intensive musical training that 
used to be out there. And that's another, a whole other topic that I would love to talk to you about in the future because it's a crisis, I think, unto itself. No question. Do you see any kind of champion rising to, to say, hey, we got to do things differently? I'm sure that there are people who are doing that now, that there are artists. I think of, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head of people. Somebody like Jack White, obviously, he's not a new artist. But Jack White formed the cottage industry around his own strange artistic vision. And that's really admirable to be able to say, I'm going to do this whole thing where I sign these bands or I play on these records that are completely weird and I'm going to put out you know, records on three-inch vinyl records and I'm going to just do all these weird limited edition things that people like. These are almost art objects, curated art objects. I think there are artists that are doing that because they're too strange or too independent-minded to be kept inside of a, a corporate structure. They have to do things their own way. Somebody like Taylor Swift clearly wants to run her own life and her own music empire. And it's probably true that big dreams lead to big accomplishments. And a lot of the magic in music was made by people who were doing it not because they thought it would be a career, but because they were 17 and they thought it would be fun to make a record or because they thought, gee, it'd be fun to sing on the radio for all my friends. Gee, it'd be great to sing my hillbilly songs in front of other people, and then maybe a career results. But yeah, if you have big dreams, you can probably find a way to make it. And you're gonna do which, depending on what the goal is. If the goal is to write amazing songs and sing and play them for people, you may not necessarily make it as a huge artist but you will achieve your goal of writing great songs and singing them for people. It, it really depends on what your goal is. It's just that I think now we think about those things more because we don't play music as a natural outgrowth of our own need to express things and our own need for entertainment. We have a lot of other entertainment options now, and uh, quite honestly, learning an instrument, learning to sing is hard and it takes time, and we're not exactly a society that is brimming with patience. <laughs> Great points. We're going to take another little uh, break here just so uh, you can hear some of my songwriting. And uh, we're going to take it up on the other side. When, when we get on the other side, I want to ask you uh, a question about passion, the passion economy. Every Day, Every Day is a celebration about us, an album that looks at our lives with optimism, joy, and hope. Songs that make you want to dance. Download your copy of Every Day, Every Day by going to martinmccormack.com and click on the music page. sense at all. A swan song wasn't part of the deal, was no curtain call. Giving out joys, giving out stand, everything was sweet. Pay no attention, it's far away, it ain't coming to your street. The suffering we feel today brings us to our knees. A new wind is blowing, bringing the disease. Wasn't long ago we were in the dough, now all bets are off. Who could 
could tell it would go to hell over some little car. Those in charge are pointing their fingers from six feet away. Soon we'll all feel the sting and be six feet in the clay. On oh, the sadness of this moment, both the mill at ease and ill wind is blowing from sea to shining sea. behind it is now that we have that the system to some degree is broke and mm -hmm. the way for artists and writers to take control is to have uh, a self-funded kind of entity through platforms like Patreon and GoFundMe. Do you think that's where we're heading and do you think that is what music is going to finally end up being? Good question. I think that a little earlier I was talking about the sort of crazy times in the discovery of a new musical form. Rockabilly and rock and roll in the 50s, hot jazz in the 20s and 30s, garage, psychedelic rock in the mid-60s, that they sprung up out of whole cloth without having been constructed. They sprung up as a result of the artists themselves doing things, breaking rules. And they did it without really a lot of support, except the support they generated by their own art. They had, every city had its own, every block even in a major city had its own rock and roll band. And now we have fewer, I think fewer public artists and more private artists. We're in an age now where it's a lot easier to write a book or to write a, a record uh, album without talking to seeing anybody. And you can just put it out yourself. That's passion for sure. That's the passion to say, I have to communicate, whether it's to say I love you or I hate you or I have beautiful eyes or whatever you're trying to say. We do have more opportunities now to actually do that and to create sounds and create movies and create books ourselves than ever before. The big question now is how do you market that? How do you become a working artist? That's the part that's really anathema because it feels like selling rather than creating. And it's a different frame of mind is to sell than to create. 
it's almost a complete opposite. The first thing as an author, the first thing a, a company is going to ask you, a publisher is going to ask you is, what is your book, what other book that's really popular can we compare your book to? And I'm sure it's the same thing in music. They say, what kind of tip do we want to put you guys on? Do we want to put you on a Black Keys thing? Are you guys more like AFI? Are you an emo band or whatever? I understand the idea of the passion economy being creating something that you have to because it's something that is eating at you and gnawing at you. Back 500 years ago, we had the patron system, right? If you were lucky enough to be Mozart or Bach, you had a patron. And because you weren't going to be able to write operas and, and sonatas and symphonies without a patron. Uh, you weren't going to be able to put on a show with 60 players without a patron. Now we have crowdfunding, which is a very different thing. It does give a lot of people ownership of, of the artist in a way, you know, saying I'm helping this artist do this or that. But I, I think always community is an answer. What you guys do with Switchback, with tours, going around the world, making yourselves accessible to your fans and sharing the experience with them, that's an amazing thing that people can do now. It creates more than art, it creates community. Great point, and you, I, boy, I'm raising my hand. Yeah, exactly. Community in art, I think that's the, the beautiful thing about being a working musician is you can go that route where you can be socially relevant and make a difference. And I know we're yawing way off from the Beatles, but in some ways, I think this would have been something that would have resonated with them had they stumbled in as young guys today dealing with this kind of environment. I would have to say it is probably the, the toughest environment to create and survive as any artist with the pandemic just adding to it than any other time really since you know we started recording music but it's not necessarily a bad thing i hear you saying that there's some positive things that are coming out of this i do think that right now there probably are more courses in art schools and music schools teach you how to make a living than before. I was actually reading a music catalog the other day with a guy in his 30s or early 40s who has made a living as a session player as well as a player. He said the most important thing is to learn how to do lots of things. And that seems like a lesson from the Beatles all the way back. Elvis Presley, who was a popular singer, he sang ballads and spirituals and rock and roll and country music and blues. He sang everything. Or Ray Charles, doing modern sounds and country and western music. Talk about a guy who expanded his audience doing something completely unexpected, which is doing two orchestrated albums of American country music. For a black artist to do that in the 60s was just awe-inspiring to me. Or Billie Holiday, her entire life was her art. She couldn't have sung what she sang if she hadn't lived that life. Edith Piaf, the same way. Artists of great, amazing passion, putting their life experiences into their work. People say the confessional thing began with Joni Mitchell or Jackson Brown. It began, I think, as soon as people started making music. Because there was never a time in which people weren't really singing their true feelings. If you talk to my mother, and I'm sure your parents felt the same way, Marty, to hear a song like It's Been a Long Time or I'll Be Seeing You or those songs in the middle of World War II where you might not ever see that person again was extraordinarily relevant. It was so rich and painful experience for those people to experience the pain of separation. 
Stu, we're going to have you back probably sooner than later because you are bringing up so many interesting points about the music business and the philosophy behind being a working musician. And I think it's appropriate to start with the Beatles because, as you pointed out, you talk about a working band. A lot of people don't realize that the Beatles just didn't come out of the head of Zeus. They worked their way to where they became successful. I would like to just ask, maybe as a final bit of this interview, if you were right now able to just sit down with one of the Beatles and have a, a conversation about life, what would you? Who would the that Beatle be, and what would you ask that Beatle? Wow, that's a fascinating question because you'd get four different conversations. You'd get it. It would be fun to sit with with Paul and talk to him about Fats Waller and his own style of piano playing and how he really, in some ways, is the guy who wants to sit in the pub and play piano for for people to sing all night long. There's a huge part of Paul that is about that kind of thing, that kind of shared experience. John would be the person to talk to just about pure inspiration. George would be the guy, I think, to talk about how to to work spirituality into your art. Ringo would be the guy to talk about. He'd be the guy probably would have the most amazing, weird, crazy stories of near death and insanity and crazy behavior. But here he is, the oldest of them all still going at almost 81 years old. So he'd be the guy to talk to about surviving in the business, I think, how you get over all the pitfalls. He died on the operating table 40-something years ago. He's lucky to be here. But as he sang, it's here for the vertical man. There's always so much praise for the horizontal man. Life, as far as I'd love to talk to any of them, but at the same time, how do you talk to somebody? How do you, gee, I really like your music. I, I, I like to think I wouldn't become a, a babbling fool because I've had the luck to talk to some people who are well-known in their fields. But how do you convey to somebody how much they mean to you as a bedrock kind of musical experience that it will be like it's almost like talking to a parent or something or an older brother or a really good friend about the impact they've had on you but you also realize that they're the Beatles they lived a crazy amazing experience in their time and changed the world and people can change the world now it's just a different world to change but I guess in the interest of grubby self-indulgence, I guess the person I'd want to talk to most was George. I think it would be really interesting for me to hear about George talk about his struggles to maintain spiritual and emotional equilibrium in the middle of the craziness that was the Beatles. He was always the one, I think, who was a little bit uh, dissatisfied with the whole thing. You could even say he was grumpy in a lot of the Beatle moments in his own way took the inspiration of John and the, and the craftsmanship of Paul and created his own sound out of them. He was the one who learned how to play slide guitar and who loved old-time British musical music and Hawaiian music and Dylan. He was an alchemist in some ways, sonically, in a way that maybe the other ones weren't. He was the one who learned to play the sitar, brought the Indian sounds into things. So I think he'd be the one I'd want to talk to. What about you, Marty? Oh, boy. You, you know, I if I had, if I was given just the choice of one, you brought up good points for all of them. I, I think probably the person that I'd probably relate most to would be McCartney. I, I think just from being a left-handed bass player, though I play right-handed, but yeah. I just think that McCartney had a, a lot of, oh, angst, I think, with the business end of it and working with John, who was just a force that I could imagine it, it must have been difficult as much as those guys loved each other. 
I think they loved each other like brothers to the point where they couldn't stand each other to some level. So I would still love to talk to McCartney, and I think he's a survivor to some degree, too. I think he's yeah. always been pilloried for his music not having the same kind of zing that Lennon certainly had. A, a sense of genius around his music and I think Paul to some degree was more of a workhorse the old yep. British model of a, a, a performer let's wrap it up with just a quick question what is it about Team Paul versus Team John even today that there are people that you can't have both I think you hit the differences on the head I think John represents to a lot of people living life as art with kind of all the inspired sloppiness and the pain that could involve Paul in this construct of Paul versus John is the craftsman, the popular artist. And it's easy always to rip on the craftsman, the popular artist, because he doesn't have the fortune, quote unquote, to be John. The Beatles wouldn't have worked with two Johns and no Paul. And probably wouldn't have worked with two Pauls and no John. It's the balance that allowed them to do the things. John had crazy inspiration, but he did not really have a lot of interest in making records. It was always up to George Martin or the other Beatles to flesh out his compositions, whereas Paul really was a craftsman. He worked hard at his craft, and his inspirations are beautiful, just as amazing as John's. But it's like Paul's attention to detail and desire to make records that he really wanted to make that for some reason people get angry at that and to me a lot of it is that it was unfair that john died at 40 and paul has lived long enough to get old you can't really criticize the guy who was killed at 40 the way you can criticize the guy who's still around working yeah but to me they're both you can't have one without the other neither of their solo careers were had any kind of the same impact that they did together but the sort of reward as george harrison said the beatles were a great thing to be in and they were also a great thing to be out of <laughs> well let's leave you it know? at that i think that's a great way to sum up because we're running out of time right here so i want to thank my friend author musician Stu Shea, and uh, Stu, i'm going to put on uh the the site for the podcast a way that people can access your books can they get them on you know amazon do you have a website let's see some of these books are out of print okay but you can certainly get fab 4 faq and pink floyd faq on amazon or if you want to go directly to the publisher is backbeat books the wrigley field book is from university of chicago press and it's still widely available there'll be a new edition of calling the game about baseball broadcasting coming out sometime in the next couple of years i want to thank you for listening i hope you found this conversation as fascinating as I have, and uh, we're going to have Stu back. Spread the word about Strung Out, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Strung Out. On our website, you can sign up for the newsletter for Strung Out, as well as the Mr. Marty Show. Just go to martinmccormack.com. It's also wrong, it's pain we